Welcome to Give Back, podcast hosted by Feed the Kids Foundation. I'm your host, Caleb Stokes, and today I'm joined by Brad Wardle, the director of Euphra. Brad, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, uh, Brad, tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and maybe start with what does Euphra stand for? Euphra stands for the Utah Fire and Rescue Academy. And so we have been in, um, in service for over 60 years now. We've been part of the, uh, we were established by the Utah State Legislature to provide firefighting training and certifications through the firefighters in Utah. So that's what our scope is. A uh, little bit about myself. Um, I grew up in Draper, Midvale area. I grew up in Midvale for the first 13 years of my life and then Draper the rest of my life. And so that's back when Draper was a farm town and I loved it. My grandfather was a firefighter from Midvale City. And so um, that started my real interest in becoming a firefighter. I always wanted to do that. It was either that or become a helicopter pilot. And my, my <laughs> Those wife's... Those are kind of opposite it, ends of the yeah, spectrum, are, that helicopter yeah, pilot yeah. and a firefighter. Yeah, I told my wife when we got married that I wanted to go into the military and become a helicopter pilot. And she told me, well, I didn't sign up for you to be gone for a year when you go through all your training and stuff. And I said, well, then I'll become a firefighter. So her dad actually was a firefighter as well. So it actually worked out well for me. So, you know, I've got firefighting in my blood and in my family. And uh, I've been doing it now. Well, I did a full-time active duty service, if you will, as a firefighter for 30 years. I worked here in, in Utah, in the city of West Jordan, for 25 years, and then I went to California for another five years and worked in California, Mountain View, California, which is in the Bay Area. Okay. Um, I started at a part, as a part-time volunteer firefighter and then worked myself through all the ranks and became chief in West Jordan, was there as fire chief for six years uh, before I retired from there and went to California and was a fire chief in California for five years. So nice. when I retired, um, I retired to come back home. My parents both got sick, and so my dad had ALS. My mom had multiple sclerosis. My dad actually ended up passing away while I was in California, but I was commuting back and forth to take care of him and with my brothers. And I incidentally, I have six brothers. Uh, well, I'm the oldest of six boys. And so, you know, we had our hands full with uh, two parents that were sick. And so I retired to come back and take care of my mom, uh, was hoping that she would last with her sickness uh, for a little longer than she did. Uh, I was hoping 18 months after I retired in 2015, she only lived for six more months Mm. after I retired. So I was home taking care of her with my brothers uh, for that last six months. Um, uh, Before that, I was commuting back and forth every weekend to kind of help where I could. My wife was from California California here to here. here To help take care of your parents until you could retire? Yep. I did that for about 18 months. um, And I loved doing it, but it was just really hard, uh, you know, commuting back and forth. And then the pressures of, you know, sick parents. And my wife had actually moved back from California to back to Utah to help with that, those efforts. And so, um, you know, um, it was, we just both collectively decided that it was probably time for me to retire. I would have probably stayed a little, a lot longer there in California had it not been for that. But I do not regret one minute retiring or even that commuting time because I got time to spend with my parents before they, left this earth and so um and they were good to me good to me and good to my brothers and so it was uh it was an honor to be part of that with her and with my mom but after i had after she passed away and we had all the affairs settled 
I was still retired. I didn't have anything to do, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And so uh, the director of UFRA, the Utah Fire Rescue Academy, his name was Hugh Connor, called me on the phone and said, hey, I've got some work down here. And uh, are you interested in coming down and working on some projects? And so I came down here, started working part-time, eventually got hired full-time here as an assistant director uh, over programs. And then, you know, still in the fire service, but I'm not a firefighter anymore, but we train firefighters and we uh, certify firefighters. And I'm still working with the fire service. And so... Uh, from 2015, uh, really, you know, I start. I was. I became director in 2017. So, uh, my passion has been now the Utah Fire Service and in the Utah Fire Rescue Academy. So that's great. That's a little bit about me. Um, so when you're when you're growing up, mm-hmm. you said it was your grandpa that was a yep. firefighter. Yep. So what was the draw? to be for you as a child to say I want to be I want to be a firefighter well there was actually three three things that kind of brought me to where I am at now in this in my career where I, what, actually what started me out first of all my grandpa was a firefighter and I was I, lo- I loved him uh, he was uh, actually my step-grandfather he's a full-blooded Italian <laughs> and uh, you know could cook a mean spaghetti but really a very good man and uh, uh, you know, would show me the fire station and the equipment in there, and I was just always intrigued by it. Then back in the 70s, which is when I was growing up, early 70s, uh, the show Emergency came out. I don't know if you've ever seen that or heard mm-hmm. that. Yep. But I loved watching that show. Every Wednesday night when it would come on, I, I mean, I, that was the show I loved watching. I loved that show. And so, uh, and that is about firefighting in, in L.A. County and paramedic service. And so uh, that was the reason, one of the reasons for it. And then, you know, I don't know why. Maybe it's because... Um, you know, I just love the smell of smoke and I love the look of fire, but I kind of had a draw to it. I, I, I just, for some reason, for me, responding into emergencies and being part of the solution for emergencies just was always appealing to me. I'm not a guy who can sit behind a desk uh, five uh, five days a week, eight hours a day. I just, it's never been my my way of doing things. I've not been comfortable in that area. I've always got, I've got to be doing something. And so I wanted to do something that I thought would be exciting. And firefighting is exciting and so that's those are the three things that kind of brought me into it and then uh, when I first started it um, as a part-time firefighter I knew it was for me and so I had to work hard to become a full-time firefighter you have to test you have to compete for those spots I did that and uh, took a huge cut in pay to become a firefighter I was making around back in the early 80s, 86, around $60,000 a year and t- took a pay cut to $30,000 a year. Yeah. Had uh, one daughter already. We, I was married at the time and it was a major uh, cut for us as far as economics go. And uh, I don't regret it. I don't regret it one minute because, you know, it, I wasn't doing it for the money. Although money's important, we all work for money. Sure. Um, and it's a good job, it's a great job, and it's taking good care of me. And it's, you know, now I'm retired, I still have, you know, the pensions that go along with the, with the firefighters have earned. Um, and so those things take care of my family now. And, you know, the job is taking care of my family now from, you know, when I retire till when I die. That's great. Um, <clears throat> I would definitely agree that it takes a special type of individual to to be in uh, to be a firefighter, to be a paramedic, to to be a police officer. I mean, those are those are people that, that your your courage and your sense of love for other people is through the roof to be able to run into danger when other people are trying to escape it. And uh, 
Um, I just think that I don't think everyone could come in and, and be a firefighter. Uh, no, it's not for everybody. It's not. Um, but the rewards, you know, for guys like myself, and that, the rewards may be different for somebody else, but for me, I mean, they're not monetary. Uh, again, you don't get into this to make money. If you do, you, at some point in time, you're going to be let down because the money's, you can make more money on the, you know, in the, uh, you know, business world. You can make more money in different areas. Uh, and you're, you're, the hours you work are difficult because you're gone from home. What well, At the time, I was gone tw- uh, 24 hours at, you know, at a time, and then I would come home and then go back to work again the next uh, uh, two days later. And then, you know, that, you repeat that cycle. Now firefighters are working 48 hours away from home, but then they're off for four days. And so there's a little bit of a give and take. But, you know, my wife had to deal with... Uh, me being gone when there were kid issues and, you know, um, she, you know, had to manage the house and I really couldn't leave if there was something that, you know, I, I wanted to be to either my boys baseball games or football games. If I was working, I was working, I couldn't leave. And so the rewards, um, you know, are, you know, when you respond to somebody in their, in their most dire moments of their life, uh, probably fire people are going to call the fire department maybe one or two times in their life. You know, and when you go to those calls, it's their worst day and you're going there to do something about that worst day moment they're having. Hopefully you're going to, you're going to be successful in either putting the fire out and protect, protecting their property, saving their lives, or, you know, in medical, in the medical world, making them better, helping them get better from whatever's ailing them. And so, you know, there's a lot of satisfaction in that kind of work to me, uh, there's a, you know, there's, a, it's a bit of, uh, I, I guess I would say I would love to go. I love to go on all those calls. I don't want to wish bad things on people, but if it's going to happen to them, I used to say I want it to be when I'm working so I can go help them. That's the, and that's been the philosophy of the firefighters I've worked with. And we all fell the same way. That's, you know, those who are successful firefighters feel that way about the job. You know, uh, but the job does take a toll on you too because you see some of the worst things you'll ever, people will ever see. You'll see some of the things, worst things that humanity can do to each other. Uh, you know, you know the, the environment can do to you, those kinds of things. And so uh, you have to be able to, you know, we're doing a better job of this now, but you have to manage that in your mind, your mental health. And, you know, what kind of effect does that take upon on your soul when you see those kinds of things, you know, call after call, sometimes minute after minute, um, day after day. And after 20, 30 years, those things add up. And so firefighters, you know, um, and police officers, I would throw into there too, as well. Um, I did that for a while too. I was a police officer for a while. While I was a firefighter, I did arson investigation. And so you kind of see that and and, uh, you just have to, the returns are you're helping people, you're helping society, you're helping your community. And the return for you, for me at least, was not monetary in any way, shape, or form. It was more or less the satisfaction of being able to know you were there and hopefully stopped the event or helped in the event to, to, to change the course of what was going on there. So you mentioned something just a couple minutes ago. Their worst day. When you go on these calls, it is most likely somebody's worst day. Yes, how hard is it as a firefighter to be in a state of mind because you all have your own personal lives right you know you, you show up to work and maybe you've been having 
a bad day the day before sure. or that morning, how, how hard is it to shift gears mentally and not and leave behind the things you're dealing with personally to, to make sure that you're ready to go so you can give 100% when you get called out to that call? Is that difficult to do? It's a good question. For me, uh, it was not difficult because, and those events did happen in my life where I was having difficult problems at home or we were dealing with different things in my life, you know, whatever it might be. But you have to focus. Your 100% of your focus has to be on that moment that you're in. So you can't focus on two things at one time. You have to focus on, in order to do your job really well, and the consequences of not doing your job really well in that in that moment in time are catastrophic. And so you know that if you don't give it all you've got mentally, physically, you know, uh, everything else emotionally that goes into that, then you're going to not be successful in intervening or whatever type of uh, catastrophes occurring in that individual's life. Somewhere or somewhere along the line, that's therapeutic because you realize you're not the only one who's got problems. Mm, that's a good point. You know, and then as you as you as you go through that time after time, somehow or another, you're able to compartmentalize. You start to realize you can compartmentalize. You know, some of the things that are going on in your life that you know really aren't necessarily the end of the world as you thought saw it before that because you just have seen something else that was truly the end of the world for somebody or you know what you would consider the end of the world for them and so you know and and then again going back to the satisfaction of it uh to be able to help somebody during that moment of time there's some therapy that comes along with that that re you realize you know there are people out there who can help you whether it's your spouse or, you know, and, and it doesn't hurt to ask for help in that when you need that. And so, you know, for me, it was it was not necessarily hard to do that because it, the job requires it of you. In order for you to do it well, you have to forget about everything else and concentrate on that one thing or that one call you're on right then. Yeah, I, I think I can remember I, I went to nursing school and... Okay. Uh, Noble when, calling. When I was doing our clinicals in, in the ER, um, they had a patient that coded. Okay. And my trainer was like, let's go. And by the time we got to the other end of the ER, um, she was like, hey, you're going to rotate in on doing compressions while the doctors and the other nurses are, you know, doing their other things. And right. so... Um, that was such a intense situation. Uh, it was, the adrenaline was flowing. Um, it was a little bit surreal. Right. Um, there was probably 12 people in that room working on this one individual to try to revive this, this person. And I remember training on and off with another person doing chest compressions and, and we spent 40 something minutes in that room trying to revive this individual right. and we, we weren't able to and that was my first experience with uh, first hand first experience of having to deal with somebody who just passed away um, and there is a unique ability and, and I don't think you realize how kind of that rocks you the first time when 
you show up and you're and, and it doesn't go the way you hope it was is gonna right. go and the outcome is catastrophic and um we got told okay hey time of death is this time and thanks everyone and, and everyone went back to their patients mm -hmm. and i was spinning a little bit mentally that wow man this person just died and now I got to go see three rooms of people who are waiting for us to come back to help them and to regain my composure and to not feel like I was not mentally in the right place to, so that I didn't go mess something else up with somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that takes training, yeah. I, I think, to a certain degree. Yep. That, and you can't really train someone to the extent... and you almost have to experience it. Yeah. And it's, and so I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a firefighter. Um, because as a nurse, you're in a controlled environment to a certain degree, right? At the hospital. I mean, you, this is your area, you know where this is, you know where that is. Right. As a firefighter, you're going into the unknown. Right. You, you, you don't have, the layouts, you don't have any prior knowledge to, oh yeah, maybe, because you, know, you said that they usually call once or twice in their whole life, so you're hopefully not showing up to a house over and over and over again on calls. Um, and so how, what when you were a firefighter, and do you remember the first call you went out on? I do. It was a plane crash. Would you mind just sharing that and kind of what you felt? And yeah, it was the, it was a plane crash. It was a, a plane crash occurred over Kearns. It was a SkyWest airline. It had collided with a plane, private plane, and it crashed, and everybody on the plane, and both planes were killed. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that was my very first call in my career, uh, you know, and uh, it was devastating. Uh, but what I realized then, and you made a point about the ER rooms where you bring in, we brought many patients, I brought many patients into the hospital that were either in full arrest, which is the code you were talking about, or on their way to full arrest. And so, you know, compressions like you talked about. And what, you know, what was intriguing to me, and you used the word surreal, and I love that word because that's exactly what it is, is when you're doing that work and you see everybody else doing their work, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, and anybody else who's in that environment working with you on that patient, you realize they are all trained. And it all goes back to your training. And uh, that's why I still love being involved in firefighter training because at the end of the day, what you have to do in order to bring some sort of semblance of normalcy and normalcy is probably the wrong word but it's a very chaotic environment so you're trying to bring it back into control either it's a fire or it's a medical emergency or in this case a plane crash that nobody's going to learn live from live you know they, they didn't live in any of that all of us responded and reverted back to our training though and you can see people working within the scope of that training and it's somewhat of a beautiful thing to watch that synchronicity between the doctors ordering their med you know the medicines and the different things that need to be done for a person who's in dire situation or from an incident commander on a on a fire scene or a plane crash saying i want you to do this and i want you to do that and you know and knowing that those individuals who are getting those orders have been trained to do that and then watching them do that 
you know, in, to the very best of their ability. That's why training is so important. That's why I'm so. That's why I'm so thought, sold on what we're doing at the Empire Rescue Academy because we're training people to go into those environments. And it's much like football, basketball, baseball, any kind of sport you play. And I suppose I'm not much of a, a musician, but I suppose it's the same thing with musicians. Fundamentally sound. If you're fundamentally sound in your training, what you've tra- been training to do then you can do anything. And, uh, you know, I used to teach, and still do, uh, incident commanders. If you have the fundamentals of incident command down, you know, life safety, you're going to deal, deal with life safety, property conservation, incident stabilization. Um, if, you, if, if you can deal with those things and figure out what the solutions are to your problems that are facing you fun, and be fundamentally sound in addressing those, then usually the environment you're going to be in is going to be what you want it to be. It's going to be non-chaotic. It's going to be, even though there's chaos all around you, there's going to be some synchronicity to the work you're doing there. And that brings things into control, even in your own mind and in, 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 in your psyche too. Even if things don't work out like you want them to do, meaning the person's still going to die or that house is still going to burn down, but you presented, you prevented it from spreading to other homes, those kinds of things, you have to realize that there are some things that are out of your control. So you only control what you can control, and that's your training, and stay within that scope. Yeah, I, that's a really good point, because even in, in that moment for me, you know, I was still a student, right? Mm-hmm. I hadn't, hadn't received everything, um, but it was later in, in doing clinicals, it was later in my nursing, and so the training for me was a lot of the classroom work, and talking about this, and talking about that, what do you do in this situation, and role-playing and, and doing different things so that when we, when we got into the clinics and into our clinicals, it was um, taking those things from the classroom, from the training, from the set up our own situations in the classroom, like practice this, practice compressions, do this, do that. So right. when I got told what to do when I walked into that room by the person who was running the emergency in that room, they said, you do this. I didn't go, well, how do I do that? Right. right. It was just immediately right into it. And we, it, it was, you didn't have to think about it. You just reacted. Exactly. And exactly. Then afterwards, that's kind of where the other part of that surrealness comes in. It was like, well, what just happened? When you get to take a moment to step back and then reassess the situation when things are over or you're wrapping it up and you're like, man, I just spent the last hour doing whatever, or two hours, or in that moment, in that time of need, and your instincts and your training kicks in, and then at the end, you just step back and you're like, wow, I did that. Yeah, and that's imp- it's, I mean, that's important. I mean, and that happens on the fire ground. It happens in, 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 I think it happens in life. And so going back to your earlier question, how do you forget the problems you have when you're dealing with those kind of problems? Because your training kicks in and you have to concentrate on what you're doing in order to accomplish the mission that's in front of you. And whether that's, again, working in an ER room or out on a fire scene or on a horrible car accident scene where you're extricating people, you focus on what your training tells you. And, you know, and, and your mind has to be focused on that in order to do your job well. So you <clears throat> show up to this plane crash accident mm-hmm. and you jump out, you grab your gear and the incident command person is probably like, hey, I need you. And so you probably just jumped in and went right yep. in and did whatever yep. it was you were asked to do. Yep. What were the emotions when you got to t- remove yourself 
this was your first call. My very first call. And I've, extremely tragic. Yep. We're talking multiple lives lost. Yep. How did that affect you? And what were the emotions you were feeling when you got to remove and the and now, you know, a couple hours, twenty four hours. I mean, how did that impact you? Well, it still impacts me. I still see those calls. I see still see those two kids that were who were killed. Um, I still remember the bodies of the individuals that I saw that were killed. So it's still. I mean, it's, that's almost forty years ago now, and it was you know that was a long time ago, and it still impacts me. But I remember um, when I got done with the call, sitting back and saying, "What did I just go on? What was it I just did?" And then realizing what I tried to accomplish in that mission, in that moment in time, that I did what I was supposed to do just there's nothing I could do to help save those individuals but we were my training kicked in and but you you hit it right on the head when you say when you're done that's when you start thinking about what you just did and the emotions become raw yeah yeah absolutely it happens and it happens on every call you go on you know and there is a danger and it happened to me too where you can become so you can become somewhat calloused Yes, you become to desensitized yeah, you to do. And, the trauma. Yeah, and and that's a dangerous thing. My wife had to point that out to me. I was probably about 15 years on the job, and I was on a full arrest. I still remember it. Uh, a lady had died in her home, and it was probably, the you know, during our shift, it was probably the second or third one we'd had that day or that during that shift, full arrest. And so, you know, this was just, you know, we, we knew how to do We knew what we were doing. The people I was working with knew what we were doing. And I think we were a little, I was, and at least in my mind's eye, I was a little callous to the emotion going on. I still remember looking down the stairway at the family and, you know, seeing their tears and thinking to myself, man, I don't feel any of that right now. What's wrong with me? Mm. You know, I don't feel any of that right now because we're dealing with their grandmother who was on the floor. We're working them out. And so I had to take inventory of myself. I went home and... It took me a long time to kind of sort out that you've become desensitized because of so much you've seen. And my wife had helped me with this. My wife's the one who says, yeah, you've, you've become calloused. And, you know, there is a bit of callousing you need in the job. You cannot let every call or, you know, some calls are going to affect you worse than others. But in order to keep going on to the next call, you have to be able to be, deal with that that incident. And so we're doing a better job of that now in the fire service. We weren't doing a good job of that back even when I started on the plane crash. I mean, you know, really what they told us to do is you just kind of deal with it mentally and get over it and get on to the next job. And, you know, people, if you complained or you're not complaining is probably not the right word, but if you expressed that you're having a hard time, it was frowned upon to talk that kind of talk back then. And so now, uh, I don't know that we're celebrating it when people start to, you know, express their emotions, but we're trying to encourage them to, to, to check, you know, themselves and, 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 and only in the people they work with and say, it's okay to feel these emotions, to feel that despair, to feel that, you know, despondency that comes along with not saving that individual. Yeah. When we first started talking, you said you got into it because you wanted to help other people. Yeah. And that your, which really is a stem that your love for other people is great yeah. in, in you. And you want to be able to help those people. So when we see tragedy, we don't want to just bury it and pretend it didn't happen right. and just move to the next thing. Um, and so we need to be able to 
um, deal with those emotions and work through them. Yeah. And understand that, hey, unfortunately, death is a part of life. Yep. And at some point, everyone's going to be deceased. Yep. You're going to have that moment where you pass away. And the people that come to try to help you aren't going to be able to save you. Yet, those individuals need to know that you did your best. Yeah. And the people, the, those family members appreciate the efforts and the, the extents that our first responders go through to try to save those people. Yes, we'd love every, we'd love to have every day forever, right? But we know that's not realistic. We just hope that it's not too early for yeah. people. And, and I remember still being in that, um, in that the hospital room in the emergency room and seeing, they said, Hey, take five, 10 minutes, regroup and, you know, go back. You got to get back and see those other people because there isn't somebody to, in that moment to come in and just say, Hey, I'll take over for you. Right. right? I mean, we staff at a level that you got to keep going. You have to be able to compartmentalize and still deal with your emotions, not push them off and not, we don't want to be so callous that the, those family members feel like we just don't care. Right. Because that is their loved one that's, that's there. Yeah. And that's a really difficult thing to do. It and is. I, and I'm so glad to hear you say that we're focusing on that more now with our first responders and, and letting them know, hey, it's okay. Yeah. And here's how we work through this and let's help you. Yeah, and I, it, it, you know, I mean, not everybody dies. Sure. You know, um, and, and you're obviously you're, you're in the business because you want to help people get and past the And that's going to be moment. the other side of the yeah, emotional exactly. coin, right? Yeah. That's going to be the positive. Hey, yeah. you were able to come yeah. and you helped and you exactly. saved and, and you stopped and you prevented. And that's the, that's the, the joy and that's the that's exactly wonderful right. emotions. Exactly right. But we still have to keep those... We have to deal with those too. Right. It's not exactly. just the negative emotions; it's the positive ones too, because there will be positive outcomes yeah. a lot too. Yeah, there are, and and that's the beauty of the job. And I think if you remember why you got into the job, and you know, I had to have my self checked. Why did I get into this job? You know, uh, and you know, was I still enjoying it like I did at the beginning? And because everything was new, but after a while, you know. Most of the calls, you, you know, they're not as new as they seem, you know what I mean, anymore, because you've, you've experienced these now, especially if you've been on the job 15. Well, I think once you get past seven years, you've pretty much started to see almost everything, except for, you know, incidents like September 11th. Nobody had ever seen a September 11th, but I remember right. what it felt like on September 11th, seeing my brothers in the fire service and sisters in the fire service who had been killed, and I knew they'd been killed, you know, so that you have to be prepared to for the unexpected that you never see coming. And in this world, it seems like more nowadays than ever, there's more unexpected coming, you know, that we never even contemplated our society having to deal with. But yet we're dealing with it every day. You know, school That's shootings, so those kinds of things that, uh, you know, um, back when I was a firefighter, school shootings, well, Sandy Hook had occurred when I was on the job. And I remember as a fire chief thinking to myself, how do I prepare my men and women to go into that kind of an environment if they have to go into that? Um, but you know, those things are happening nowadays where it is very easy, even for those who are the most, uh, uh, energetic firefighters and EMTs and paramedics 
to get overwhelmed. And then if they don't deal with those emotions, uh, you know, it can bad outcome, outcomes can come from that suicide. Uh, you know, I've seen more firefighters committing suicide nowadays than I ever saw before. Drinking issues, uh, drug issues, you know, places for them trying, and it's not, not trying sent, to find outlets. Yeah, to, exactly. To trying to ease their pain, ease their memory, their, yeah. their emotions. Yeah, the, exactly. Um, yeah, because they, they don't, we haven't given them a, a positive outlet to express those emotions and to deal with those. And so they, they will find a, uh, a way and an, an outlet of their own. Yeah. But it's um, okay for us to talk about these things. In the past, it wasn't. And so, you know, I found great therapy being able to talk to my wife, my brothers and sisters in the fire service, my buddies, if you will. Mm-hmm. I can talk to them about stuff that bugs me, you know, and, and then I'll go, oh, get over it, cowboy up and walk it off, you know, that, which is what we used to say. Right. You know, and yeah, there's probably tear sheds. Yep. <laughs> I said that backward tears yep. that you're shedding. And, yep. uh, you know, there's probably some hugs and, yep. and laughs and you know, all kinds of things yep. when you're talking to each other, which is how it should be. Yeah. Are you looking for a way to make a meaningful impact in a child's life? Look no further. Did you know that for just $4 a day, you can provide a child with a nutritious meal and give them hope for a brighter future? At Feed the Kids Foundation, we believe that no child should go to bed hungry. Our mission is to eradicate child hunger by providing meals, educational resources, and empowering opportunities. Your support can make a real difference. With just $4 a day, you can feed a child, fuel their dreams, and break the cycle of hunger. Join us today in this life-changing cause. Visit our website at feedthekidsfoundation.org and learn how you can become part of our movement. And when we are able to, under, when we let other people in and people understand how we're feeling, there's great therapy in that, yeah. in itself. It's true. It's when very we true. Share, um, when, when we share our struggles with other people, not to burden them, then other people can help us. Yep. Yep. I, I don't know that you need help if I don't know you need help. That's exactly the point. Yeah, I think we're trying to make here is that, you know, and and honestly, we've seen I've seen this in the fire service where I didn't know that person needed help until it was too late when they'd taken their own life. Um, you know, and you hope that you are, are, are you know, you're doing away with those stereotypes that people have in their minds that if I ask for help, I look weak, mm. you know, um, it's okay to, you're not weak. In fact, you're strong because you're asking for help and it takes somebody who, for, that needs, that is strong to ask for somebody else to help them. I think a lot of people feel like they're failures if they have to admit that they are struggling with something. Yeah. And but that's, I think that's what we do in our society right, for some reason. We've, right. we've conditioned we, people to think that we, way. We... We have told people, if you fail, you're worthless. Yeah. When really, failure is a part of success. That's exactly right. Exactly it's a right. stepping stone in being successful. Yep. You don't wake up just being successful. You're exactly right. I you failed have to make mistakes. You have to make wrong decisions. You right. have to make, in business, in life, you have to go through... A learning process and, and part to, of that learning process is making mistakes and failing if you will and so if we replace the word with mistake with failing yeah that you fail and you fail and then you fix it yeah and you get to take the next step on your path well then that, that becomes experience 
Yes. That becomes experience when you do that. If you fail and then learn from it, now it's not so much failure because hopefully you don't fail again. But if you do, you know but the steps. Okay you know you the do. steps. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we, life, society has told us that, oh, if you're a failure, you're, you're worthless and, yeah. and you, you're terrible. You suck. You, you're never going to amount to, you won't, you can't, right? When we listen to all those negative things continually pile on us, right. then what do we start doing? Yeah, you're right. We won't. Yeah. Then you don't even I'll try. I'll never be. Right. We, we stop trying. We yep. start living in what I call our pit of despair. Yep. Agreed. And then the depressions and all those things set in. And we start believing all those things that we hear. And then we start thinking, well, maybe I'm just not worth it. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't live anymore. Maybe I shouldn't do this. When the reality is... Each one of us have so many unique things to offer this world, our communities, our families, that it's okay if we stumble along the way in whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish. Well, and I've, I've come, to con- to come to know, I mean, I'm older now, that I, and I don't think I grasped this earlier on, that we're all on a different path. Oh, yeah. We're all on a different path. And where I'm out on my path and your path... Don't need to be compared because they're completely different no. worlds. But we have commonality. We have, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that are similar on my path that are on your path too, as well. And and hopefully we can learn from each other as we, you know, navigate the road we're on. Uh, you know, and I think that, you know, we're on different paths, but they intersect. Yeah, they do all, all day long. They do. Yeah. Yes. Like yours and mine are intersecting right now. Uh, yeah. You know, and and I think that that's important to realize that. And there's something to be learned from those intersections when that happens. And, you know, um, some of the guys I've worked with in the fire service that are, you know, again, I call them my buddies, but, you know, we've taught, we, our paths intercepted so many times that we became close because of it, very close in a, in a bond that probably will not be broken. I don't see it ever being broken because of the things we've had experience now with each other on. You know, they've seen me fail. You know, they've also helped me to overcome that failure or they've helped me to get better because of it. And uh, vice versa, I hope that they'll say the same thing about me with them. And that's, I think that's important. I think, I mean, my spouse, my wife, Judy, she's done the same thing. She's seen me fail so many times, but she's been the one that says, you keep moving. Yeah. Don't stop. That's okay. You know, you got to keep dreaming. Yeah, exactly. Life sucks our dreams right out of us if we allow it to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that with our podcast and we're, I was telling you about this before we started recording was we want people to understand that you should dream every day and you should go chase those dreams and you should make them come to life and and live in that dream because no one's going to live your dream for you and except for you and you, every person is capable of dreaming you just got to start again. Yeah, I agree with you. And tell people Completely about agree. your dreams and don't be embarrassed to tell people what your dreams are because there are a lot of people that will help you achieve your dream if you just reach out. Yeah, and you're you, right. You tell them. You're right. And so uh, this is a great topic that we're just discussing right now. And so, look, my encouragement to people is if you're feeling, if you're in that pit of despair, you just you need to go talk to a friend. Yeah. Ask for help. I mean that 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 line of phone a friend is yep. really cliche-ish, but no, that's the that's legitimately how it is. Yep. Call a friend. Yeah. 
say, hey, I need to just, I need to talk to someone. Do you mind just listening to me? Yeah. Agreed. And, and they'll listen. And then when you're done talking, you're going to feel a huge weight lifted off your shoulders. And during that conversation, you're probably going to shed tears together and you're going to laugh and you're going to hug and you're going to build that bond with that person, whether that's your spouse or a friend, whoever. But that would be my encouragement is if you're in, if you're in that pit of despair, you can dig out of it. You can climb out of it, but you got to have other people help you. I agree. Sure. And, you know, I think you, you you become that person that is willing to ask for help, but also willing to give help. Yes. Being willing to give that help when somebody asks it of you. And that could just be listening. Yeah, just you don't listen. have to have answers. Exactly right. Just listen. Yep. Just exactly. listen. Yep. Um, Brad, so talk to us a little bit. I, I, we, we've been talking about the mental aspect, and you guys have been doing work around that for the UFRO. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you guys are working on something pretty cool right now. Um, a specific cancer screening. Yeah. Because your firefighters go in and having, yeah, you wear masks. Right. But nothing's 100% impenetrable. Right. Right. So what is, tell us about this cancer screening that you guys are working with and what you're trying to do for your firefighters and just the firefighters in the state. And I don't know if this is something you're trying to help promote nationwide too. Or t- so tell us so this about is, this. So this is a Utah-based initiative right now, but it's not only Utah. There are other departments. In fact, the department I was fire chief in Mountain View, they're working on this as well. So it's become more multi-state, but I'd love to see it become a national trend as, as well. Uh, you know, back in the day, we talked about when I started on the fire service. I mean, we barely wore air packs back then. Mm. And, and some of the older firefighters I worked with would, would look at you kind of, and what kind of, you know, wuss, you have to wear an air pack. <laughs> You know, why are you wearing your back on that fire? And, you know, so we had to change that mentality. So, you know, I, I grew up in the fire service primarily wearing my air pack but didn't wear it like I, the air mask in, in the environments we, we, we um, would go into because it just at the time the mentality just wasn't the same as it is today um, but those environments were still very dangerous as, even as dangerous as they are today the other thing we would do back in the day is that you know just like in football I don't know if you played football it's not, you did play football I did yeah you know if you had a nick on your helmet or your gear was dirty you, you had grass stains somebody knew you'd been playing football well, the same thing is true in the fire service when I was started. If your gear was dirty, your helmet was black because you'd been into the fire, you know, that was a badge of courage. And you didn't want anybody cleaning that stuff because that signified you've been in fighting fire. But what we found out, you know, and, and we all signed up to go into harm's way. You know, I did as a firefighter. But what I didn't know was that harm's way meant many more things than just a burning building where the fire could kill me, where the smoke could kill me. It's the stuff that gets on my clothes, that get on my air pack, you know, without, or that when I didn't have my air pack on that, you know, would, would now is causing cancer. And there, there is a, um, there are a lot of studies going on right now for the fire service uh, to the point where the World Health Organization is labeled firefighting profession as a class one carcinogen, which means we get cancer because we work in this job. Uh, firefighters are three times more likely to get cancer than the regular public are right now. And uh, the cancers come up, come in at the later stages of their lives or later stages of their careers. I personally know 
on more than one hand, firefighters who have died from cancer. Mm. Now we're understanding that it was the environments, it's the environments these guys have worked in. It was the clothing we would take back to the station and, you know, not clean that was caught, that is causing some of these cancers. And so the passion that we have here at the Utah Fire and Rescue Academy and that we're working co collaboratively with Utah State Fire Chiefs Association is to get this message out. Uh, fortunately for us, there is technology now that exists that didn't exist back in the earlier days that uh, you know have, help, have helped us get our awareness to where it needs to be, where we can do multi-cancer early detection, meaning the technology can go in and uh, the, the test that we're using here at the Fire Academy we're promoting with the State Chiefs Association is called the Grail the gallery test through Grail. And what they do is they, they take your blood and then they identify, they can identify up to 50 different types of cancers at the earlier stages of those cancers. Wow. And so the benefit of that is not only to figure out you got cancer at the earlier stages so that we can start treating that before it becomes, you know, stage four of some sort where there's no hope and the only cost now is to prolong your life or to you know hopefully enhance your quality of life but it, you know we're trying to get ahead of that curve rather than behind that curve where we're treating cancers at the earlier stages we're also promoting the uh, you know washing of your turnout gear you don't need that badge of courage clean your turnout gear after every after every call or change it out and in, in, in fire chiefs like myself had to realize that's they're a budgetary implications for that if we're going to change a firefighter's budget or turnout gear because he's been on a fire well i'm gonna have to have a pair of turnout gear for him to to work right. in so i gotta pay for that right yeah. those that that awareness if you will needs to be we're you know needs to be there for all of us in the fire service but in particular what we're trying to do is get firefighters tested right now that are uh have that are 40 years of age we want to get all firefighters tested but that's almost over 7,000 firefighters in the state of utah so to get that done and um to pay for that i should talk about what the pay what the cost is of it this gallery test that we've talked about is normally a 949 dollar test for the general public anybody can get it uh intermountain health care is providing it for their employees uh Grail is discounting that test for first responders, for firefighters in particular, to 649. And so, in order, and that's a test that, you know, again, does the blood test and identifies up to 50 cancers. If you've got them, you go to your general practitioner or to your doctor, whoever it is you want to go to, and tell them, hey, I got this test here. I need to have it. And actually, the test is sent to your doctor. And then they figure out a game plan to start addressing those issues that are dealing with so, you. So, hold on. So, yeah. okay, I'm 44. I'm mm -hmm. a firefighter. Mm-hmm. I come and say, hey, Brad, I want to take this test. You say you order the test kit and it gets shipped to my doctor's office? No, what or? we do is we, we will contact Grail, uh -huh. and they, will, they have a medical director that will set up your test for you. So they'll either come to your home and they'll draw your blood or you'll okay. come to like here at the fire academy or to your fire station and they'll draw your blood. But we've got to pay for that. And so uh, because insurance companies aren't necessarily paying for that right now, we're working on trying to get that included in the benefits of our insurance companies as a, you know, as a, as a um, um, test that, you know, what do they call it? Like, just like doing a, uh, a, preventative. A, a, yeah, a preventative test, a colonoscopy, doing something along those lines. This is just for, you know, to try to get your, to test your blood, to check, to see if there's any cancerous cells in there. And then if we can do that, then the general, then your doctor who gets this test, we, you, when you talk to their medical director from Grail, you have to tell them who your doctor is. Uh, 
and they send the results of the test to your doctor. So I had my test done. Mine was sent to Dr. Hansi, and my doctor said, hey, man, I've got your test. He incidentally works for Intermountain Health Care. He had the test done for himself, too. He goes, it's a great relief. I'm cancer-free right now, which is great to know. Yeah. But I have to tell you that I was worried. You know, I mean, oh. after 30-plus years on the job, you wonder, yeah. what's lurking there? You know, I do know of a couple of firefighters that have had this test done, and they identified cancers in them. And that they had no idea. They were not symptomatic of any cancer at all. So, you know, they were able to get in there and treat those cancers at the earlier stages of it. And and now one of them, at least, is 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 right now cancer-free because of that. Wow. What would it have looked like in four or five years when that, the symptoms of that cancer started to manifest itself? What, would that per, what was his lifespan going to be? What was his quality of life going to be? Well, this testing has helped mitigate that. You know, not everybody's going to be saved. Again, like we've talked about when the fire sure. service, not everybody's going to be saved. But we're going to start trying to get people tested earlier on. The more we get tested, I think the more we're going to help and we're going to save. I, I really do believe in that. So you order the test through Grail. Right. They come to the fire station in your house. They Their nurses would, you know, draw the blood. Right. Ship it back off to their... Their testing facility, right? They do the scans, process on the blood, and then send a report to your doctor. Yeah, they'll send a report to you and to your doctor. And then you meet with your doctor. Yep, exactly right. If there's cancer there, they'll let you know, and then you make a game plan. If not, then you're you're great at that moment. Right. So how often are you – what is the suggested time that – your firefighters get tested how often once a year every other year yeah we'd What's... like to start we'd like to see it be annual testing and that's what our goal is going to be we have to walk before we run on this so you sure. know just getting them tested at the front front end of this is what our goal is right now is just to start getting firefighters tested but again we have to come up with the funding for it so we're working on legislative solutions for this either through city councils and fire departments budgets that they have every year or through the legislature, Utah State Legislature, there is a presumptive cancer law that identifies four cancers right now that are considered to be if you have this and you have, and you have eight years of experience and you meet this certain criteria, then it will become a present. You got that on the job as a firefighter. So we're working with the legislature on trying to expand that list a little bit so that we can, you know, from the workers' compensation side of the house, get firefighters treated if they have cancer. But, you know, there are a number of volunteer agencies in the state of Utah um, that don't have budgets, you know, really to do much of anything in their departments other than maybe to respond on a few calls and to have training. So they don't have the ability to train any of their or to test any of their firefighters. Yet they're still need, they still need to be treated. They're, these, these hazardous environments they're working in are just as hazardous as the ones I worked in. And so um, we are working with philanthropic organizations, the Firefighters Credit Union, um, which is, uh, you know, fire, a credit union based up, uh, made up of firefighters but, and their family members has been willing to donate $25,000 to this initiative right now wow. to seed money. So we're going to start working on that, trying to, you know, solicit funds to help, you know, get these firefighters tested. And what we're trying to do now, as I said, we have 7,000 firefighters in the state of Utah. Uh, it's a bit. That's a big nut to crack to get every one oh, of them tested. So uh, we're trying to. We've established a baseline right now where you have to be 40 years of age and have at least eight years of his service in the fire service. That's kind of the criteria we're utilizing right now. Eventually, what we'd like to get to is testing every firefighter annually every year. So that's what our objective is going so to right be. So right now, 40 and eight. Um, 
roughly how much is out of your 7,000? Uh, well, that'll give us about 2,600 firefighters in the state that'll of Utah. Be tested yeah, and that, and that price tag. 650 bucks a pop? Yeah, $1.5 million. Yeah. What that number is. That's a, that's a chunk of change. It's a chunk of change. And right now, if they want to get tested right now, who covers that cost? Right now, either the firefighters have to cover it themselves, the individuals have to cover it, or we're trying to get it. The department, some departments are starting to pay for it. Logan City was one of the first departments to start paying for their firefighters to get tested. Washington City is doing it. My old department, West Jordan City, is looking at putting money into their budget to test their firefighters. So these departments that can't do have budgets, have working operating budgets, are trying to find the money in their in in their respective budgets. Uh, so that's helping. But you know, if it's a retiree or if it's a volunteer, then that money's coming out of the person's pocket, uh, not necessarily out of insurance cost because right, insurance is not paying for it, not paying for it yet. Hopefully, one day they will. But you know, again, so we're trying to you know put money in in a 501c3, similar to what you're doing with your feed the kids thing, is put money in a 501c3 that goes completely to firefighter testing. No administrative fees, no you know any fees that are associated with it. Other than that, money goes in for firefighter testing and it goes out for firefighter testing, wow, cancer testing. That's great. That's great. Um, so. Where can they find more information on this? You can contact me directly, or you can find the information on our website at UFRA. You can just go to type in the Utah Fire Rescue Academy. You'll see information on the uh, cancer testing initiative we're working on right now. There's a video that we produced that talks about what we're trying to accomplish. That video is in draft form because we're going to be adding other people to talk about the importance of doing this as well. Um, uh, the Utah State Fire Chiefs Association has a website as well. You can go to their website. They have that information on their website uh, for you know multi-cancer early detection so there there are a number of early cancer detection tests that are out there the grail test seems to be the most comprehensive one meaning it, it can find over 50 cancers there are ultrasound tests that are also available but body scans if you will that can look for masses in the body and those kinds of things and some firefighters have opted to do that with some success the end of it, one of the individuals I was talking to you about earlier, you know, they were able to identify bladder cancer through this body scan, and he would have never known he had it hmm. had he not had that body scan done. And wow. so, as a result of that, uh, they, you know, started treatment early on him, and he just uh, announced to the rest of us uh, a couple of weeks ago that he's cancer free right now. But you know, again, I think I shudder to think what it would have happened to him had he not known about it, because cancer is a deadly cancer. Bladder cancer is a deadly cancer oh, to yeah. get. If you if you don't get that treated earlier on. I know people who have died from that, you know, and I will say this, that one of the things that started me talk, uh, really thinking about this is I had a, a firefighter who became a captain in my department in Mountain View, California, 43 years old. You know, he, he was you know, just getting ready to retire or had, I think he had retired and he came down with cancer. He was dead, you know, mm. he's dead now and 43 years old, a young kids and a family. And, you know, there's no question he got the cancer on the job. I mean, the, yeah. but, but, you know, had we had that testing, this testing available for him back earlier in the day, I wonder what that would have looked like for him. Yeah. You know, so you, you maybe, start, maybe. He'd still be here. He'd still be Maybe. here. Exactly. You never know. You never know, but you, you'd like to think, right? It, yeah. It, that, that would be the case. And so, you know. Um, so what's, what started you to go down this path? What, there had to have been something to say, hey, we need to make a push for this. Well, it was sort of a con convergence of a, many, uh, a couple of things. 
we have a winter fire school every year down in St. George. And that winter fire school, it's where over a thousand firefighters come down for training in St. George in January. And in addition to that, we have a vendor uh, exhibit hall that is, you know, show, you know, markets, the vendors come in and market their wares, whether it's fire gear, turnout gear, so firefighters and fire chiefs can come in and see, you know, fire trucks, those kind of things. We had this grail uh, come in and they had a booth in our vendor exhibit hall. And one of our assistant directors that works with me, Jolene Chamberlain, is in charge of that exhibit hall. And she came to me while we were down there and she said, hey, what do you think about this test, cancer test? And he said, what are you talking about? I didn't know there even one was this. And she said, yeah. So we went over and talked to him. And at the same time, I had just been notified of this individual that worked with me in California who, uh, you know, had cancer. And I, you know, and he died three months after I was notified of this. And so those things kind of came together. And then there was an individual in, that would work for Unified Fire Authority who was a friend of mine. Chris Cage was his name, and he was back in at 9-11 when he was back as one of the first responders at 9-11, and he got cancer, and he died from it as well. So those things kind of converged on themselves, and we saw I saw this test as an opportunity for us to start, try to get ahead of this uh, insidious disease. If we can stop this in its tracks, or at least identify it in its tracks, so we can you know at least get starting in a treatment earlier on, I thought, what kind of results can we have? It's all, all kind of a hypothesis now. Because we don't know what we don't know about this, mm-hmm. who who has cancer and who doesn't have cancer. But once we get more data in that says, you know, because of this early cancer detection we've done, we've identified this cancer in this individual. If we had not have identified this cancer, eventually it was going to come out. And that, you know, it, it would have probably, well, uh, could have killed that individual, you know, or, you know, affected their life in a, such, a, such a horrible way that their quality of life was diminished. So, you know, the data will start to bear itself out as we get, you know, a year, two, three, five years down the road. How many cancer, how many firefighters were tested for cancer? How many did we find? And how many did we, you know, treat, basically? Yeah, no, that's great. I, I love that we're trying to make sure we're taking care of the health of our first responders. And yeah, they, they deserve it. They do. They deserve I mean, it. The the selfless acts of constantly showing up in on people's worst days. Yep. Um, we we need these things. Yep. And we need to get it funded. Yeah. And so yeah, if, if we can help in that from our foundation standpoint, we'd love to. Yeah, that's one part of that. Yeah, I um, think we can do a little scratching if you do the other's backs yeah. on this kind of on the, what Absolutely. you're working on, which is a worthy goal as well. And as I see this, you know, we're I mean, we're we're going to people who um, have deep pockets, and we're we're presenting this information to them and saying we need your help. Not only do we need your help with funding, but we need your help with legislative efforts. You know, to help us lobby our legislators to help. You know. Uh, get these firefighters tested, help us lobby our insurance companies to get this testing included in their benefits. So we can, you know, so the costs aren't being borne by necessarily the citizens of the city they work within. Although, you know, that's what some departments have decided to do. And I think that's worthy, a worthy goal. I mean, we pay for you know, physicals for our firefighters, for mental health of our firefighters. We should be paying for uh, the ability to test them for cancerous substances yeah, in their body. health screenings. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, so Brad, I know our time's coming close to being over here for having you on today, but if people want to be, if people say, you know what, I'd like to become a firefighter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
What is the process for somebody to become a firefighter? Do they call here to do their classes and their trainings? Do they have to go through a specific city? What would be the steps for somebody who's like, man, I really would love to become a firefighter and find out what it would take for me? Well, there's two things you need to be you need to have in order to be a firefighter. You need to be certified as a firefighter. There are there are courses you need to go through in order to become a firefighter. We offer those here at Utah Valley University as a recruit academy. Uh, there are a number of uh, different locations throughout the state of Utah. Uh, there are applied technology centers that do firefighter training as well, and I can help direct you to those places for those individuals. There's Bridgerland. There's Davis County. County, and then there's uh, one down in South, it's called Southwestern Tech, down in uh, Cedar City right now, that provide Firefighter 1 and Firefighter 2 classes for you to get those certifications. The other thing you need to get is your EMT, because most fire departments, in fact, all fire departments, especially full-time ones, re, you know, firefighters are also EMTs. They respond on medical calls. That's 70% of what they do, right. medical calls. Are, so you need to get your EMT as well. And I can help help you find different co- places where these courses are being offered throughout the city of Utah. So, uh, you know, if you want to, if anybody wants to, uh, you know, come right along to figure out if the job is for them. Some have come along in, in these classes and said, oh man, I, I didn't realize it was this. I don't think I want to do that. And it's not for everybody, but so there's opportunities for ride-alongs as well. And I can help facilitate those if somebody wants to do that. Awesome. So if you're going to help facilitate that, how how do they get a hold of your office here? They can, they can email me. They can go to our website. It has my email address. They can e- email anybody in our organization for that matter. It doesn't need to be me. We'll help with that. Uh, or they can call. Um, and uh, my phone number's on there. Heidi Scott, who's my office coordinator, runs runs the show basically here. She can direct those calls to wherever we need to go. And I can put you in contact with the uh, person who's in charge of our recruit academy here at Utah Valley University as well. Great. And so that's just UFRA, if they type in UFRA. Yep, they go to UFRA or Utah Fire Rescue Academy. Yep, either one of those will help you. It'll get you right where you need to go. Awesome. Well, that's great. Well, Brad, anything else you want to share with our listeners today? No, thank you for allowing me to come in and talk about these things that are really important to me. Obviously, I love the profession of being a firefighter, you know, the service in it. For those who are volunteers in in the fire service, they have they do it for nothing more than the love of the game and the love of their community they don't get paid for it i got paid to do that job and i can't believe still that i got paid to do something i loved so much but it it did provide a good living for me you know i didn't get rich off of it but i i mean i have a good living from it but you know firefighters it's a it's a noble profession just like you talked about nursing nursing's a noble profession you know you're helping people and so if you want to help people and you want to make a difference in your community, and you want to leave it better than you found it, firefighting is something to consider, I think, in this job, in this world that we live in nowadays. It's definitely a need. Yep. We, got it. we have to have first responders. Yep. And um, so thank you for being here and for your service as a firefighter, and, and we appreciate what you're doing with the UFRA right now, and especially the cancer screening. So thanks, Brad, and, and we'll have you on again. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Caleb.